some friends of mine talked to me about Cindy Blackstock. I didn't really know her. Cindy was uh, very much in the news at the time, and she was working so hard. And so I started to go to the classroom where she was busy at, and mainly in Ottawa at first. And I was so excited about her mission to really fight until it happens. And I was very, very impressed with her, like everyone is, whoever meets her. So that was Alanis Abomswin talking about her latest film, We Can't Make the Same Mistake Twice, which premiered at TIFF last fall. And this is Alanis's 49th film. And the film tells the story of Cindy Blackstock, who is an indigenous lawyer who took on the government in her fight for the services for children living on First Nations reserves. And the film is really interesting to me because it's quite long. And the format of it is a little bit different than what you're used to. There, are, it's, there aren't very many talking heads. There's actually just a lot of really long takes of uh, capturing what's happening in a courtroom. And I thought what was interesting about it is that it really mirrored the way in which the legal process works in Canada and how formal it is and how she really made the film in a way to document and witness what had happened to these Indigenous youth. Yeah, her films, I think, are often these sort of glimpses into various kinds of First Nations communities, and she does them in this very intimate way. So you're right, this is a film that's very different from the films she's made in the past. And I remember the first film I saw of hers was actually her first film, which she made over 40 years ago, called Christmas at Moose Factory. And that film is entirely made of drawings by children who live in Moose Factory, who narrate the photos and narrate their own lives. And I remember that was such an interesting way to get a glimpse into a place that has a bizarre name and that I had never seen before and I'd never heard of until then. And in this film, you'll find her main subject, Cindy Blackstock, you know, have her opening remarks for like 20 minutes as part of the film, not edited down. And so it's really interesting how she's taken this very formal approach to showing what happened. Yeah, and I think as a filmmaker, she has such an important position in Canadian cinema, not only for the fact that she's 85, still making films and working on her 50th film overall, um, but also because her films are often such witnessing of various kinds of struggles even. So I feel like she's an important figure in cinema in general, mm -hmm. and particularly for Indigenous cinema in Canada. And we had a lot of fun interviewing her because she was just so inspiring and friendly and she even invited us to the opening party of her film. And when we got to the party, she was just so warm and happy to see us there. It was really, really different than when you go to other film parties and you're kind of just like a fly on the wall. She really made sure to include us. She definitely loves to have fun. Oh, yeah. And you know she's always the most glamorous woman yeah. in the room. Yeah. But I think this in this interview, what was also amazing is that you and I both seemed so awestruck by her. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were in this, like, incredible uh, hotel room. Well, she even had fun with how glamorous the hotel room was. So have a listen to our wonderful interview with Alanisa Bomswin. Anise, maybe we can start by talking about the plot of your new film. So maybe you could tell our listeners in a couple of sentences what your new film is about. It's about the court case concerning the equal rights of children who live at the reserve level in our country in terms of health services and education. All my life, all my work is always, my main interest has always been education. 
fight and the way that the history was thought in the classroom for such a long time were really well organized in teaching the history of the country and the base of it was to hate our people. I lived that in my lifetime and this is the reason why I am here today because by the time I began to understand why things were so bad for us, by the time I was a teenager, I was really wanting to do something to make a difference. I felt that uh, the children in the classroom should be told another story. And that's how I started going to classroom and I knew how to sing, I knew my history and I started teaching. And uh, so all along, all my work, this is the base of it. In the 60s, I did a lot of touring in residential schools at that time, singing and talking to children. The educational system had a big job to tell the truth and stop teaching propaganda to make our people less than they are and inferior. Some friends of mine talked to me about Cindy Blackstock. I didn't really know her. Cindy was... Uh, very much in the news at the time, and she was working so hard. And so I started to go to the classroom where she was busy at, and mainly in Ottawa at first. And I was so excited about her mission to really fight until it happens. And I was very, very impressed with her, like everyone is, whoever meets her, and how courageous she is, and nothing's going to stop her. And started going to James Bay again. The first film I made, Christmas at Moose Factory, was in James Bay. A long time ago. And I had a... I, I think I went there the first time in 1967. But the film never came out until 1971. I was having a, a hard time to get the film board to put the money in to finish the film. So this was in a residential school at that time. But all across the country, as I travel all these years... I've seen and I've witnessed people who are standing up where they are, fight for every step. The reason why I've seen so much changes, it's because of a lot of people fighting. Their life started to change all over. So when I heard about uh, Cindy Blackstock and what she was doing, I was just so amazed and watching her and not being afraid and no matter what they did to her, she just continued. And I think one of the things that strikes me about your films is that in some ways you also established this intimacy with your characters. And uh, Maya was noting earlier, she had noticed you know, there's a point in the film where she says, Alanis, and she's speaking to you. I wonder how you as a filmmaker managed to build this sort of relationship with the subjects that you picked in your films. Well, I spent a long time with, uh, when I decide that I'm going to be with a person or if I'm going to a community, I usually go alone and I do just sound with a recorder and I spend a long time listening to the people. And I don't go there with a the crew first without understanding what the story is. I think what drives me is the love that I have for the people, and I'll take the time that we need. I'm not going to go wanting to hear something. I'm listening. They're the ones that tell me the story. I go and I listen to what they wish to tell me, and what is the story. And it takes time and a lot of patience, which I have. 
I just listen for hours until I feel I understand what that story is. This film took followed the course of nine years. How do you begin a process like that, especially when you're not sure how long it will take? How do you outline a story or do you, how do you embark on a journey like that? In this case, at one point I was working on five films at the same time. But they were all connected. So what drives the different times that you actually shoot with Cindy? Is it always around, did you always go in when there was a, you know, a court date? Or was there sort of, you would check in every three months? How does that work for you? It was very hard to get into the courtroom, first of all. This is the first time. It's quite historical for us to be allowed to shoot in court. And actually, that's the fantastic thing, because, you know, you get to see how it all works. We only hear the after effects. Mm -hmm. But the details of sitting there? For me... In the 60s, I sat in a lot of courtrooms because then they were saying 68% of the prisoners are indigenous. And so I thought, well, if all my people are in jail, I'm going to go to jail too. I'm going to go and visit them. So I started touring in a lot of prisons to sing and talk and show films. In some certain cases, later on, I was showing films. And I sat in courtroom, seeing lines up, mostly men, but women also. And you just watch with a lump in your throat for hours. There was no respect towards our people. They had no voice. Neither from the judges or the lawyers. It was like, next, next. You're guilty of, you're accused of blah, 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 blah. Guilty, guilty, jail, jail term, pay a fine. A whole nation doesn't have a voice. And you know, with the heads down. And, and now, having witnessed this court case, you know, you, you could be very angry watching what's happened there. But for me, the real gift is to have watched all these witnesses coming to court at the tribunal, being listened to, being respected. For me, it's a great, great gift. I, I'll say to myself, if I die tomorrow, I won't be as worried as I would have been years ago. Because we've, we've gone a long way. It's higher than hope, what I feel. I know that the changes are going to come. I know that there will be justice. There will be. I'm positive. It might not be as fast as we would like it to be. I don't think they will be able to continue that kind of stuff. The public at large knows it and understands it. Then, you know, when you have a people in a country that feels there's unjust here, if everybody feels that, you cannot continue doing it and make people think that this is right. It's over. So did you keep eye on this case and always would go in and check in, or were you sort of in the court all the time? Well, every, no. I think the first time I went was 2010. So we're 16, six years so you learn so much, like every, every word counts. And, mm -hmm. and children have been so involved, and that's because of Cindy Blackstock. Like, she's been working with schools a lot, and teachers have been wonderful in doing exercise and really teaching what the real stories are and what education is. And you see these children by the hundreds feel responsible to make sure there will be change. Children... That little boy in the film says, mm -hmm. there's something wrong in the world, I'm going to fix it. Mm -hmm. Well, the mind of children were very much like that. We want to talk a little bit about the style of this film with you, because I think that's one of the things that really jumped out at me. 
For me, you took a very formal approach to documenting this very formal process. Why did you decide to almost mirror? That's the way I work. That's the way I've been working from the beginning, and I'm not going to change. <laughs> I feel that uh, you have to go to the roots of things. I don't want to play any games. It's just I tell it like it is. And I like to for people to have the time for themselves. We have to respect them, and they have to be allowed to speak and make themselves understood. For me, that's my main law. I'm not doing nothing, nothing new. I guess one of the things that was a little bit different than some of the other films of yours I've seen, and I think I've seen so many of them, is that you have these very, very long takes. Like the film opens with a 10-minute speech by Cindy, and there are times where you let people really speak. We really have to listen, and we're faced with it. And I wondered if that was something you had thought about before, or was that in the editing? No, um, I think it's it's as it happened. As I sat there, like, you know, when you're making a film, you're always editing. Mm-hmm. You're thinking, oh, my God, this should be the beginning. Or you have four or five beginnings and four or five endings. This is how I just felt they have to listen. How involved do you get in the editing process? I have a person that's been working with me as an editor for a long time. Who is it? Alison Burns. She enriches what I'm trying to say by her way of editing. If you're hopping around and you say, oh, maybe this, maybe that, for me, that's not it. I know what I, which story I'm telling here and what it is. And then you have to work closely with the editor. But when do you decide what the story is? Is it while you're, is it for you, is it always before you start filming or is it during the process that you're like, yes. it's becoming clearer? No, it's during, it's my witnessing the story. I'm there. So the story can, can you know, the first time you have an assembly might be 12 hours, maybe 15 hours. And you you have to start peeling it off. You have to start taking this stuff out. But the heart of the story, I never lose track of that. And it takes several people to make the story, as you can see in this film. This is how I work. I'm going to do another one, but... Right now, I feel that the ABCs of this story is there, and anybody who looks at it will understand that. This is my main reason for doing it that way. You've also worked, in addition to Allison, for many years, you've worked with the National Film Board. How has that relationship grown over the years? How have you seen maybe a shift, or has it been the same over the years, having them as a producer on your projects? Like in anybody else, like it didn't, wasn't easy. Like I've been there a long time. It's almost um, it's 48 years. So I've seen a lot of changes there too, mm-hmm. a lot of changes. I've had many years there that was very, very difficult. But when you believe in something, you just, uh, you just take it until it gets to where you want. Over the years, people discourage you, and you know, there's all kinds of things that goes on that are pretty hard to take. Uh, you know, whenever it got so bad for me, I, I used to remind myself, what am I here for? I did these educational kits, and when I finished them, it was the first time that we had a, a product to teach. It was the voice of a nation, a direct voice. It was now the children would learn about one nation all kinds of things, the history and certain uh, traditions, culture, language. We were like children because it was the first time 
we had a product in the classroom for the teacher to use. It was done by us. That was the first big victory that I still feel very good about. That made a big change. Stuff like that, but that doesn't happen overnight either. You can say all you like and people don't understand you or they don't care, you know. You can't lose the heart of what you're trying to do. Yes, you're very passionate, and like we said, you create this intimacy with your characters. Is there ever a moment where sometimes you need to step away a bit from what's going on or to get more of a, to be able to approach your project maybe from a different perspective where you, where you need no. to step away or you're always 100% in? Yes. Cindy, who's an activist in the film, at one point she says that government is watching her and they've been on her Facebook and so on. Do you, did you ever experience in your long career where you felt like there were people putting roadblocks in your way to be like, you know what, we're not ready to face this truth or we don't want this to get out? I had a very hard time at the beginning. There were all kinds of things, all kinds of small things that you could easily take the door and say, I'm not staying here. But when I came to feel that way, I would still remind myself why I'm there. I have a more personal fan question. You just celebrated your 84th birthday recently. And one of the things I always think is kind of missing, and you know that my other part of me also programs for hot dogs, and I feel like a film I really would like to program, Alanis, is a film that is a biopic of yours, a film about you. <laughs> have you thought about, have you allowed it? I feel like other people have brought this idea up. And every month or every week. Yeah. So I want to hear not, what your answer is. Why is no one making a film about you? Well, I don't want to right now. I feel I'm not ready for that. I feel if there's ever a film made about me, it's not going to be just, you know, make a film about Elanese. I would have to allow that if it's going to teach a lot of stuff at the same time. But don't you yeah. think that would be amazing? A year of someone following you and understanding how you work and the kind of passion you bring to your work. Uh, for me, that's, that's not enough. It would be history that I would like to teach. By looking at a film that was made about me, so it's not just me. It would have to be history through my experience, which for that I have to write myself, which I will do. I know die before. <laughs> I hope you take the time to do this. <laughs> yeah, I will. I, I do a lot of writing as we have written a lot of stuff you know, over the years, but it would have to be very meaningful for for a learning process mm -hmm. through me, through not not just about me, but I, I could tell a, I know an important story about my experience in life. But it would bring, you know, many people and many nations. Yeah, so you yeah. have to wait till she's ready. <laughs> then I'll be knocking on your door. <laughs> like, Annie, where's the phone? <laughs> We need this now. Yeah, I guess to us, sort of like young filmmakers and so on, you're like, you know, the big indigenous filmmaker. And I'd love to hear the full story. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I know. I don't want that to happen in a surface of things, which is very easy to do. It would, be, would have to be meaningful. Can you, I'm curious about your next project. Are you, are you working on multiple films at the moment too, or are you focused on one? I'm working on another film in Norway House, which is northern Manitoba. Uh, first time I went there was in 2010. <laughs> and I've, I've been going there several times, and I'm very excited about this film. 
And then I'm going to continue this subject. What's the one about Norway House? Do you, what's the subject matter? Well, I first went there because of Jordan's principle, because Jordan comes mm-hmm. from there. But it grew, and um, I've uh, been very involved. I've been watching their school there. And for one time in my life, I'm going to praise a school like nobody's business. It's just so wonderful. So I've been filming a lot in the school, the children. It's just uh, very special. We started to edit already, so much that, and then I'll come back to this project. I think one of the last questions I kind of wanted to hear your opinion on or what you do... When it comes to the new generation of sort of filmmakers right now, are there any names or people that you're watching that you're really excited about? Well, there's an animator that has made this film. Her name is Amanda. Mm-hmm. Did you talk to her? Amanda Strong. Did you see her film? Yes, we did. Oh, my God. It's so beautiful. Poor Faces of the Moon. It is so fantastic. And there's a lot of filmmakers all around the country that are doing things, and it's very exciting to see how possible it is for so many young people. If they want to, and they're serious at it, they'll do it. There's space, there's room for it, there's money, especially in all these institutions that is put there for indigenous artists, whether it's painter, filmmaker, sculptor. It's very exciting. It's very rich everywhere I go around the country. I meet young people and I see what they're doing and it's just so great. There's so much talent. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We There was a film that we saw and that who we spoke to before we came to see you. You absolutely have to see the film. It's called Snip. And it's about residential schools and Joseph Boyden wrote it. Mm. And the animator is from Toronto. Mm. She's Métis. She's actually originally from Manitoba. But it was just so amazing. Yes. Thank you for your time. Well, you're welcome. So that was our interview with Alanis Abamsuan, and we had such a fun time interviewing her because she was just so charismatic and so warm and welcoming. She even invited us to the opening party for her film, and when we arrived, she remembered our names. She was just so uh, hospitable and definitely made us feel very welcome. And she's incredibly glamorous when you when you, you meet her. Like, we were very awestruck when we saw her uh, for the first time and we got to spend such a, a nice, like, intimate, have a nice intimate discussion with her. Yeah, it was so wonderful to actually um, see her after the film and after our interview again at the after party. And they showed a slideshow of photographs of Alanis through the years. And I'm just so amazed at how many years she's been doing this and how committed she is to her own community or communities, because there are various communities of Indigenous people. Yeah, and you could see she really enjoys what she does. Like, even after all these years and dealing with all the personalities she's had to deal with to make these films... She really still cherishes the act of making film. It's not only important to her, but you can see it brings her a lot of joy. Yeah, and that's always something that I think translates into people's films in a sense, even if the subject matter is difficult, yeah. which it often is in yeah. Alanis's films. Yeah. So this, her next film will be her 50th film. And actually, we met the subject of her next film, or one of the subjects of her next film, at the, at the opening party we were at. 
So thank you for tuning in to episode two of season two of The Gates. If you haven't realized already, this season is featuring the voices of Indigenous filmmakers in Canada. We're really excited about this series and we hope that you're enjoying it. Again, we are now a podcast so you can download The Gaze on iTunes and listen to us wherever you are, whenever you want. So we hope you enjoy and we'll see you next time.